This is Tom Tuft, and I want to welcome you to this, the fifth episode of Season 2 of the Minnesota Family Law Podcast. Kelly Olson of Kaisa Wealth Management will be joining me, and we will get started right after this. Hello and welcome to the Minnesota Family Law Podcast, the podcast by, with, for, and about Minnesota family law professionals. My name is Tom Tuft and I'm a family law attorney and ADR provider at the law firm of Tuft, Locke, Jerebeck, and O'Connell. I want to wish everyone a happy new year. I know many of us took a break or at least slowed down a bit over the holidays and now we will have to hit the ground running next week. We'll have to hit it especially hard as we will have to understand the new rules of court uh, that went into effect uh, January 1st. It is my impression that these new rules, which concern primarily filing confidential and non-confidential documents, that these rules are especially punitive towards family law practitioners, as we deal with virtually all of the kinds of documents that have been addressed under the rules. We will face sanctions if we file a document as a confidential document when it shouldn't be, or file a non-confidential document as as confidential when it shouldn't be. Mistakes will be made, but even more likely is the difficulty of dealing with documents that are on the edge. I have started perusing the fascinating Minnesota Rules of Public Access to Records of the Judicial Branch. If you're looking for a sleep-inducing 42-page read some evening, I encourage you to dive in. In fact, it's, it be, has become almost, almost essential. I was especially curious as an example as to how medical records are going to be treated, and I did a quick search of the word medical in Adobe Reader. The word medical appears in the rules 14 times. In no place did I find a definition of the word medical or medical record. Is a printout of a list of prescriptions from Walgreens a medical record? Is an explanation of benefits a medical record? I also searched mental health records. The phrase mental health appears one time. Are mental health records protected? What about chiropractic? Is a chiropractic record a medical record? There's a lot of gray area that we run into as family law practitioners. And if we are or our staff makes a mistake, not only is the document rejected, and we must cure that defect, but we must also file a motion within three days of receiving the notice of the deficiency or we risk that the document will not be deemed timely. The motion to relate back must be filed within three days of the notice. I'm going to move on to something somewhat later. Uh, I've known my guest for somewhere around 10 years. I like to stay in touch with wealth management experts, so I understand some of the ins and outs of the advice our clients may be getting from their own wealth managers. In addition, it's helpful to guide settlement discussions and even litigation strategy. What is especially interesting is when I talk to my guest, she gives me new insights and ideas that I can use for my business as well as my personal planning goals. The discussion of this podcast was no different. This is our first discussion, and... While we kept it more to a higher level, 
There's a lot to be learned and a lot to think about, which we will take up in future podcasts. I am happy to welcome Kelly Olson-Peterson of Kaisa Wealth Management. Kelly, I want to welcome you to my podcast, talk to you about what financial advisors bring and and what uh, things attorneys and clients should look out for. And you seem to be a good uh, person to to bring that to the table. Sure. Well, thanks, Tom, for for having me on your podcast. We're excited to talk about these things. And I think one of the the offerings that financial advisors can bring to people going through a divorce, and especially if you can have those conversations um, preceding that or during uh, the negotiations, us being able to help a client understand what the goals for the assets that they might be splitting are and going through and looking at the cash flows that they may or may not be receiving through this divorce is extremely helpful to perhaps change the mindset while you are in negotiations because if you understand uh, what the assets and what the cash flow is going to do and how you will be able to live through the next five years and not just five years but 10 15 20 depending on where you are in retirement or life um, it, it does help change the mindset going into any sort of negotiation and a mediation or a divorce situation because it might remove some of that emotion if you already know that okay if we do hit these bogeys then I know I can meet my goals and objectives as I've moved in 25 plus years of practice I've learned there are some really complex financial instruments out there. There's some interesting tax impacts of different things. And so I, I know enough to know that when, I, when I'm hitting a wall and don't know some things and, and, uh, and it's time to bring in someone who, who does know these and does study these on a daily basis. And, uh, so what kind of things are you, are you finding that either attorneys could do better or, or basically you could, how, how you can help your clients? Sure. No, it, it is a great question because um, on, the, on the flip side, if we see we get a client after the fact, um, whatever we are have on the balance sheet is what we have to deal with. And not all accounts and not all assets are equal, even if their dollar value looks like they're equal. So, for instance, we always say that, that cash is king. So the dollar value of cash is always the dollar value of cash. There's no taxes to pay. So you always, as much cash as you can get is, is one of the better instruments to split and receive the Roth IRA I would say is next because whatever you're receiving there the dollar value is not going to be taxed it's only likely to grow and then you work down the the path of saying okay a brokerage account uh, the dollar value isn't equal because you're going to have to pay some capital gains tax on that and IRAs you're going to have to pay ordinary tax rates and so everything just has every type of account has a different valuation to it um and then it's whatever is inside of those accounts can also add another layer of complexity. So you really have to look at that balance sheet of saying, not all, while the dollar amount may, may be equal, that what you're getting in the end may not be equal simply because of taxes, your new tax bracket, and, and how you're going to liquidate that. Fine, and this is an area where what the law provides to some extent you know, because we're not supposed to speculate, and courts aren't allowed to speculate about tax impacts sure. unless it's imminent. And when we work with financial advisors, the comment is, well, these are going to happen. These are going to be taxed, you know, when, when they're right. withdrawn. That's just the, the way it is. Um, so it, it is one of those areas, and there's disconnects in other fields, but this is one of the disconnects between the law and the you know, sure. family law statute. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And, and, and we, trust me, we've probably seen it all 
um, coming out of the divorces where some of it has been every single account is split 50-50 and everything mm-hmm. works out fairly equal. And I've also had um, clients come to me where that particular client received all the non-traded REITs and he, and he received all the, the stocks and the cash. And that is where I'd say there was a big disconnect of those two types of assets. And again, that's a type of asset would not be equal value, even though the dollar amount may have said that, simply because a non-traded REIT, you can't sell it usually. There's usually some sort of a huge tax gain to it. Mm -hmm. There's recapture issues when you do go to sell it. And sometimes, and this is the tricky part of looking at REITs, if you're not working with them on a daily basis, and a lot of people have these, is um, you may have already been paid all of your principal back, and they're still telling you that you have a, a dollar value and you'll come to find out that when you go to sell it that there that that dollar value is not true and it may be zero at that point in time so they're very very tricky assets and though the law may say one thing we as right. lawyers are have to do our best for our clients sometimes despite the law or sometimes mm-hmm. pushing back and you know I, I think getting that information and knowing what the actual cost our client is likely to be is really important now we may not be able to push that in the same way to the court, uh, but most cases don't go to court, and so we can certainly mm-hmm. work that into settlement discussions and and absolutely, you know. absolutely, and, and even just knowing where the red flags exist to to just be able to say, hey, this this in the case of the one client that that I worked with, um, where she got all those non traded reads, you know, just to, to be able to raise your hand and say, hey, this one isn't fair. The reads should be split fifty fifty, not. 100,000 of a, of a non-traded REIT for her and 100,000 of stock for him. That's a, They're just very different assets. And so to be able to raise that flag, like you said, you may not be able to um, do anything with that in the law, but at least knowing that would be helpful. We were talking about discounts for taxes just now. Mm-hmm. And then there's these other realms where we should really think of those kind of things are how liquid an asset is it makes it harder to value, but it also makes it harder to turn it into cash, like you talked about. How should we think about adjusting for those kind of things? A lot of people have either a small company, a small business that's very, very hard to liquidate. There could be debt associated with an asset, or just real estate in general is hard to liquidate. And, and I think that's just where you have to come up with in negotiations. And, and again, knowing that that's a red flag that. If you transfer that to just the whole thing to one side of the balance sheet, that that is uh, what I would call an, a, a lack of marketability asset, and you should get a discounted dollar amount on that. And that's where having a good person involved that does valuations mm-hmm. on those types of things might apply that lack of marketability to that. Because even, and you might be able to make the case that an accountant, if you were going to sell it, would apply that exact same discount to it. So why wouldn't you do it in a divorce proceeding? And so that could be something to look at. Yeah, I just was doing a mediation last week and the the advisor had put different 10% of the person had almost all of the asset, but still there were other members uh, of the LLC, uh, all the way up to to 32% discount, um, you know, depending on what was going on where the person did not have yeah, you know, more than 50%. So it was a really mm-hmm. interesting discussion and explanation of the different, uh, uh, you know, lack of control and lack of marketability discounts that are out there. So it's obviously something we need to pay attention to. Absolutely. And I would add to that also 
when you're looking at those things, I realize you can't, you guys probably can't project a tax rate, but even if you agreed to a, a nominal or mm-hmm. an average rate, knowing what the tax basis of many of these assets are, because again, I go back to cash is king because there's nothing to tax there. But if you if you get say you know a hundred thousand dollars worth of stocks that have ten thousand dollars worth of basis that's a very different value than getting a hundred thousand dollars of cash and so tax basis and knowing that and how how things get sold in tax i i think does need to be somewhat of the equation in the end so what are what other things are important to consider in working with a financial advisor in a divorce? Well, I think the the logical step would also be running some financial planning projections for uh, the client of just uh, letting them know that if you do come out of the divorce with X amount of dollars in assets, what does that mean to you? If we project that out for the next 10 years, 15, 20 years to get you to retirement, how long do those assets work for you or can you supplement them with a salary or a job or some other source of income and what do those goals and objectives really need to be for that pile of assets because then perhaps the client after divorce would then have some semblance of an idea of what what that those um, assets on their balance sheet need to do and I think just knowing that going through the divorce I think it helps them negotiate more rationally if they know that going into it. It's not unusual for us to have a client who says, all right, I'm going to have to work an extra couple of years because of this divorce, mm-hmm. two, two, five, whatever, you know, whatever number of years, they just have a plan and say, all right, I want to land here, but I'm not going to be able to because of this. So now I'm going to have to do this. And those are, yes. uh, you know, you're right. Those are really, those are clients who thought about it, plan for it and, and, and mm-hmm. know where they want to land. But that is not uh, the norm when people are going through this, they're so focused on the the intense emotions of the divorce. I mean, I think you're right. It's very different working with a client who's who's not as prepared, thoughtful, hasn't worked with someone and gotten that information. Right. I think it's a, it's so emotional and, and on so many different levels. And it's very easy to get caught up in the very short term and be a little short-sighted of, of what the the bigger picture looks like and that's what we can help with is to broaden that bigger picture beyond what does the next year of your life look like because the very first question i usually get is what how much can i spend on a house and again it, you'd have to back into that and say well what do you think the what are we looking at the end of the results of the divorce being and then we can back into budgets and cash flows and and then we can come up with and say this is what we think we can afford on a house um, but in order to do that, it does have to be a little bit thoughtful. And, and you have to not just look out at one year or two years, but a lot of times you're needing to make this work for 10 years, 15 years, and 20. Mm-hmm. And, and think about retirement as well. You do have to save for retirement too. Well, Kelly, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and kind of walking me through some of these these things. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot to, lot to think about and certainly an attorney who doesn't do this, you know, that level of analysis or that kind of analysis isn't, mm-hmm. isn't probably the right person to be the financial advisor to their client. So. Yeah. And, and this is what we're doing all day long with our clients is helping them figure out what those broader goals and objectives are and helping them get there. I think we all do best when we stay in our lane. 
<laughs> yes, and, and, and work together. Uh, that's, that's absolutely. Well, I'm sure we will be talking again in the future, Kelly, but I really appreciate the, the chance to kind of pick your brain on some of these things. Yes. No, thank you for having me on, Tom. It was great talking to Kelly. Uh, I will acknowledge I'm somewhat loath to bring additional professionals into my clients' lives uh, after they've hired me. Many of them are already working with therapists. Um, they may be getting their kids to therapists. They may have a family therapist and an individual therapist. Uh, they have a relationship perhaps with a banker. Um, they have perhaps other attorneys, bankruptcy, other circumstances going on. Um, sometimes the uh, financial uh, planner can be a bit of an afterthought. And then as you're getting into maybe kind of getting close to the end of the case, it's not unusual to think, man, I wish this client had a financial advisor to walk them through, through things. Um, recently had a circumstance where they had a joint financial advisor and the, that person had said, look, I can't talk to you about certain things ethically. Um, and so one of the parties felt very put off by that. Um, you know, the financial advisor just meant I can't talk about the other side's, you know, money situation because I have a separate relationship with them. Uh, the, the person was like, I can't talk to this person anymore. I cannot talk to my financial advisor. And, uh, it, it created a bit of a stumbling block in the settlement discussions. So I never saw what the letter said, um, but clearly it bothered one side, um, more than my, the other side, more than my client. So as I come to the end of uh, yet another episode, I want to encourage and invite you to share ideas for future episodes. I have a wall of post-it notes with probably 60 different ideas, but um, I would certainly uh, welcome more. Um, there's just so much to what we do in family law. Uh, there's always new ideas, new nuances. Um, some people are constantly coming with creative approaches. Um, I've run into some uh, attorneys in greater Minnesota who don't have the same access to certain resources, and they've come up with great ideas for uh, addressing things like chemical dependency um, cases and how to, how to test for alcohol and other drugs. Um, just some really creative uh, use of the resources that are available. So I will keep uh, bringing those to your attention, and I encourage you to bring those to my attention as well so I can share them. Once again, we have come to the end of an episode. So to my family law colleagues, I say thanks for listening, and I look forward to continuing these discussions. Now take care of yourself and your family so you can take care of your clients and your business. 